This morning we'll once again turn to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 4. We'll read there together the first 16 verses of the chapter. As we left the account of Genesis last time, we left the situation after the fall with God pronouncing judgment, expelling Adam and Eve from the garden. We also noted that in the judgment there was grace, that God guarded them from the burning fire of his holiness and from the eternal suffering of living an eternal life with sin. That God had promised that there would be a seed from the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, that there was hope even for sinners who had rebelled against God. And now the story continues in Genesis chapter 4. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought forth or brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. As far the reading of God's holy word, may he add his blessing to it this morning. Your congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Several years ago now, the Chicago Tribune carried a news story that began with this title or first line. A Texas mother was so intent on making sure her daughter made the cheerleading squad that she was willing to hire a hitman to kill a competitor's mother. 
Apparently the woman's hope was that with the death of her competitor's mother, her daughter's 13-year-old competitor would be so overwhelmed with grief that she would be unable to compete, thus opening up a spot for her daughter to have a place on the cheer squad. Detectives said that the mother originally wanted to hire a hitman to kill both the daughter and the mother, but the cost was too high, so she decided to save some money and only kill the mother for an economic $2,500. Thankfully, the, the plan fell through. But it's a story that shocks us with its cold-bloodedness, doesn't it? And that's saying something, because we live in a world with instant news that gives us access to all of the horror stories, not just in our neighborhood, but across our country. And if it's something extremely graphic, probably across our continent. And yet this story, for all of its shocking value, also fits well with what we see in our world, doesn't it? If we think of history, in all of history, it's said that the 20th century stands out as the most bloody of all, the most violent century in history. A title, of course, that the 21st century seems attempting to take. From wars to the Holocaust to genocides, our recent history is full of murder and death. And we should also note that neither, of these, neither are these millions of murders limited to far-off countries and crazy dictators like Stalin or Chairman Mao or Paul Pot in places like Russia, China, or Cambodia. No, we must acknowledge that even here in the West, we have seen the death of millions through abortion, more recently through euthanasia. In Genesis 4, we read of where all of this murder began. We find not only the pattern for the first murder, but we find what will be our focus, the heart condition that gave rise to it. We'll see that in our world filled with so much murder, Genesis 4 reveals that the root of murder is unbelief. Genesis 4 also shows us that the symptoms of unbelief are not limited to the Jeffrey Dahmers or the Ted Bundys. But these symptoms that give rise to such horrific things are found within our hearts too and must be guarded against. We'll see together that the story of Cain and Abel demonstrates the danger of unbelief and calls it us to subdue it with faith. First then we'll see the, the first symptom of unbelief is anger over God's approval of those more faithful. Our chapter begins with optimism and hope. Adam and Eve are blessed with a baby boy. It would seem that this was the first baby born. What a marvel. What a a joy for the first parents. They called him Cain. Verse 1 records Eve's response to Cain's birth, and it's unusual. She says, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Have you ever heard a mother refer to her baby boy as a man? Maybe a little man, but it's a strange way of referring to Cain. But it's not a typo. You see, Eve's choice of words are intended to draw the reader's attention back to what God had done when he made 
a man. In fact, she is saying, God made man, and now with God's help, I've made a second man. There's hope here. The birth of a child is a naturally happy occasion, but this birth was especially significant. Remember what God had promised Adam and Eve as he pronounced the curse on the serpent and on the ground. He said that there would be one in the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. No doubt that promise crossed Adam and Eve's mind as they were blessed with this baby boy. Would this new man be that savior? The author encourages us to read on with enthusiasm. Well, soon Cain is joined by a younger brother named Abel, and these two boys, seemingly the first of all children, grow and become men. We read that both take up meaningful professions. They are diligent men. Cain works with the ground. He tills it and cultivates it. Abel works with flocks. It's a peaceful picture. Adam and Eve, the happy parents. Cain and Abel, the grown men who have taken up their own place in the world. But then a note of discord is added. In verses 3 to 5, we read of the offerings that they brought. We read that Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. We immediately wonder, well, why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? The bare facts of the story smack of God being unfair, capricious even, perhaps even fickle. He chooses one, but not the other. Was it really Cain's fault that God didn't accept his offering? Some have argued that Cain's offering was rejected because it was of the fruit of the ground instead of a blood sacrifice, but that doesn't seem right because God had nowhere at this point commanded blood sacrifices. And indeed, even in the law given to Israel, there was opportunities for sacrifices from the fruit of the ground. No, the answer is found in the descriptions of the offerings and then highlighted for us in a New Testament book in Hebrews 11 verse 4. We read carefully in Genesis 4 verse 3, we read that Cain simply brought some of the fruit of the ground. If that was all we were told, we would be left in the dark as to what Cain did wrong, but Verse 4 provides a contrast. Abel brought fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. The Jewish rabbinic commentators note that these descriptions of fat and firstborn highlight the wonder of, of Abel's offering. It meant that Abel brought God the pick of his flock, a precious sacrifice for a preeminent creator. Hebrews 11 verse 4 confirms that Abel's offering was brought with faith. Cain's was not. Abel's offering was a sacrifice. It cost him. He took of the best of his flock and he gave it to God. Cain's offering was marked by a different attitude. Where Abel went out of his way to please God, Cain didn't. He acted out of duty. God's response is not random or cruel the proper response to Cain's arrogance. 
Cain's response to God's rejection only confirms what his offering suggested, that his heart was not actually worshiping God. He was a proud and self-righteous man. How dare God reject his offering? How dare God be displeased with a sacrifice that he made out of duty without true worship? Cain's response is not merely indicative of his pride. It reveals that first symptom of unbelief. He's angry that God would favor the faithful Abel and judge him in his unfaithfulness. We see then that unbelief is not always evidenced by idol worship or by the proverbial atheist holding his fist up to the sky. No, unbelief begins with rejection of God's authority. And so that means unbelief is not found only in the atheist and idol worshiper. It can easily be found in our hearts too. It's found in our hearts if we've gathered for worship out of a mere sense of duty or perhaps habit or superstition. To worship without meaning, it is, is acting in unbelief. Such an attitude says God is, worthy, is, God is unworthy of true worship. The same is true even when we give offerings to God out of habit or duty, but without a sense of worship. Despite the goodness of our outward actions, they are nothing to God without the accompaniment of true worship. They're unbelieving if we think that God doesn't look into our hearts. Do we realize that? Cain's anger exposes this. Had he genuinely been trying to worship God and his sacrifice been rejected, what would he have done? He would have responded with eagerness. Seeking to please God, seeking to bring his life into conformity with God. No, Cain is angry, and his anger exposes his heart. He's not worshiping God. Far from it. Instead of repentance or sorrow for his rejected sacrifice, he turns to anger. And we see that his anger is directed at Abel. And the fruit of the curse is beginning to crop up in the heart of Adam and Eve's first son. Cain's failed worship and angry response stands as a warning to all of us. It warns us about the way that we worship. God's goal is not to have us simply show up to church twice on Sunday, sing some songs, say some prayers, sign a check, and sip some coffee. That alone doesn't please God. Micah 6 verses 7 to 8 explains Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, should I go above and beyond to the extremes of offering everything that I have to God? He replies, God has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, to love the Lord your God, to love your neighbor as yourself. Dear people of God, God desires our hearts. He calls us to truly worship him by loving him, to demonstrate his love by keeping his commands. Yes, we 
keep his commands. Yes, we gather for worship. We give offerings in cheerfulness. We serve the Lord in our songs and in our prayers. But it comes from our hearts. You see, God doesn't define love as some fuzzy feeling toward him when we live our lives however we please. No, God defines love as keeping his commands. As seeing how he has called us to live. As demonstrating that we love him by bringing our lives into conformity with his law. But he doesn't just call us to outward action. He calls us to inward love. And so Cain's angry response exposes the unbelief of his worship. And as it does so, it challenges us. What's our attitude as we worship God this morning? Do we worship God in genuine love? Or has unbelief crept in? Secondly, we see that unbelief rejects the consequences of sin. When God engages with Cain in verse 6, he does so graciously. Cain's sacrifice didn't deserve God's approval. Cain's response certainly didn't deserve anything more than God's judgment. But God engages with Cain. Why are you angry, Cain? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. You see, God is warning Cain. So often in the after effects of a terrible action, the perpetrator expresses regret, perhaps even surprise. We hear that phrase, I didn't know it would end up this way. We hear it from the drunk driver after the terrible accident. We hear it from the husband caught in an affair and going through divorce. We hear it in the simple things of a liar being caught up in her lie. But here God does Cain the mercy of describing the danger of sin in detail so that Cain would resist it. God appeals to Cain's happiness. Literally, God tells Cain, if you do well, there is uplift. Because Cain's face was downcast. It was sad, troubled, angry. Uplift was reversal of Cain's downcast face. If, if Cain wanted to be happy, he had to do what is right. And if the promise of happiness wasn't enough, God describes the danger on the path that he was going down. God says, in essence, that sin is nothing to trifle with, Cain. It's going to destroy you. It, it crouches at your door like a dangerous beast to attack you. Kill it, or it will kill you. But as Cain grows in his unbelief, he's unmoved. He disregards the warning against sin. It's a striking contrast to Eve's temptation. Did you catch that? How did Eve fall into sin? By the convincing of a mere creature, one she was supposed to rule over. But here, Cain has set his heart in sin to the point that even the convincing of God himself doesn't bring him back. Cain has no will to master sin. He's embraced it. Fresh from his warning, he attacks Abel in the field and he kills him. And the awful effect of the first murder is intensified by the stark description. The author of Genesis gives it one verse. One short verse in the first human life made in God's image 
is ended. The first human blood is spilled, and it comes at the hand of his brother. Why did Cain kill Abel? We might say jealousy or anger, and those are both right. But we should also see that the root of both is not just an emotion towards Abel, but it's an emotion towards God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer rightly declared that Cain killed Abel out of hatred for God. You see, murder is not just an action towards our neighbor, it's an action towards God. R. Kent Hughes adds that we see the same truth in David's murder of Uriah. Maybe you've wondered in David's psalm of confession, Psalm 51, why he speaks about sinning only against God. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. Did David forget about the widow, Bathsheba? Did he forget about the dead man, Uriah, that was, the cause, or that was caused by his sin? No. David saw within himself the cause of his horrendous crime. It was with God that he was first of all displeased. Because God had limited his freedom by forbidding him the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David's crime was directed first and foremost at his restricting God. And so we see the way of Cain is the way of all unbelief. Very quickly, we see that not only does the unbelieving heart ignore the warning against sin, it, it rejects responsibility for sin. Just as with Adam and Eve's sin, God comes to the sinner in search of confession. Adam and Eve, we remember, turned to deflection. They, they blamed one another, and then they blamed the serpent. But eventually, they did admit their guilt. Cain doesn't do that. He simply replies, Am I my brother's keeper? Cain's twisted heart is on full display here, but God is not deceived. Just as with Adam and Eve in the garden, his point wasn't looking for Adam and Eve as if he didn't know where they were or as if they didn't, he didn't know what they had done. And this question here is not a, an evidence of his ignorance about Cain's action. No, it's a gracious opportunity for Cain to repent, for the sinner to confess. God's response is not to deal with Cain's clever question, but to address his heartless sin. What is this you have done? Listen! Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Even in his response to God's curse, Cain isn't moved. He doesn't show remorse. When Adam and Eve were sentenced by God, we saw that they responded in faith. Not so with Cain. He responds in unbelief. My punishment is more than I can bear, he says. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. You catch the irony there? Cain's concern reveals his heart. He has no mention of regretting Abel's death. He himself had just killed Abel. But now he speaks only of how hard his life will be because of God's justice. It's a cry of terror and self-pity. He, the wolf, feared that he would be devoured. He feels fear and pity, but no remorse. 
Here too, we see that it is not merely a story about the first murderer's punishment. We see a story that highlights the danger of unbelief as it hardens within our hearts and takes hold. Not even God's initial grace will soften it. By denying the consequences of sin, unbelief also rejects any punishment. Unfair, unfair, cries Cain. But his brother's lifeblood cries out from the ground where he shed it. We see thirdly that unbelief ignores the grace of God. Cain could see suffering very clearly when it came to his skin. When it came to Abel's, he saw nothing. But God hears his complaint and God gives him a sentence of grace. The Lord says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Cain's fear is addressed by a visible mark. He no longer needs to fear a violent end, even though he brought Abel to a violent end. What Cain's mark was is a matter of speculation. Some think maybe it was a tattoo. Others suggest a hairstyle. Others suggest something like a dog that went with him to protect him. We can suggest that probably each of these three is wrong, but we don't know what the mark was. What we do know is what it meant. God's mark in Cain is a sign of grace. God places a mark of protection on Cain, signifying that he, God, is Cain's protector. Whoever would kill Cain would experience seven times the punishment of Cain on, from God himself. It's true that Cain's life being secure from vigilante justice isn't a lifting of the curse, but it's a mark of God's grace all the same. And it reveals to us that God's concern for justice isn't merely for those who faithfully follow his will, as it might be, but it's also for the rebellious sinner. Despite all of his unbelief and sin, Cain belongs to God. Yes, he would reap the punishment for his evil sins in this life and ultimately in final judgment, unless he repents. But all the same, This sinner belongs to God. It's remarkable. But even this makes no impact on Cain that we can tell. He goes and he lives in the land of of Nod, that is the land of wandering. Despite God's warning that he would be a wanderer, he flouts that and builds a city. We see in verse 17. His heart of unbelief appears to have continued unchanged. And indeed, the New Testament uniformly speaks of Cain as a symbol of sinners, even using the phrase, the way of Cain, to refer to the way of sinners in Jude 11. Yet it remains true that Cain's life was not beyond God's grace. Even the first murderer, a brother murderer at that, could have been cleansed and found new fellowship with God if he had repented. The warning here is that the heart of unbelief is hard. In light of how deep the root of sin and unbelief goes into the heart of fallen humanity, it's amazing that that any are saved. Cain's hardness is a reminder of our natural response to God. We're angry at his rule. 
We don't like the restrictions he places, naturally. We reject the consequences of our sins against him. We ignore his grace. But it is by the power of the Holy Spirit through the finished work of Christ's redemption that even our hearts, which are naturally like Cain's, can be softened and restored to fellowship with God. Cain's story speaks clearly of the danger of sin and unbelief. God's warning to Cain in verse 7 is a warning for all of us. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must master it. It's a clear and personal challenge to us this morning, isn't it? Maybe you see the danger of unbelief in the life of Cain. You're concerned at the consequences that came upon him. Maybe you've seen evidence of the cost of sin in your own life with the wreckage that it leaves behind. Maybe you long to even master your sin, but you wonder, well, how? Hebrews 12, verse 24 has our answer. It tells us of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant with God and man. A covenant whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, what did Abel's blood speak? cried out from the ground for justice. Rightly so. But the blood of Christ speaks of forgiveness. So that even the heart that is hardened in unbelief, that has lived in anger with God, can return to him. Can hear the call of Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Dear people of God, our passage is a unique story, but the subject matter is common to all of us. Rebellion. Sin. The consequences of sin. Alienation from God. And it reminds us that outside of Christ, of repentance and returning to God, the way of sinners is the way of Cain. It's a preview of life in rejecting God. Unbelief that increasingly grows harder, rejects God's grace, and leads to death and eternal punishment. But consider the grace of God here. Where we see the sin in our lives and we wish to fight against it, recognize that God showed grace even to Cain, that he will show grace to us, that he has in Christ. Cain brought an arrogant offering to God. God still came to Cain. Cain murdered his brother. God still gave him opportunity for repentance. He came to Cain as a father comes to a rebellious child seeking his restoration. God didn't even leave the murderous Cain exposed to Satan without help. He warned him of the danger of sin. And then when all of that was to no avail, Cain rejected all of it. God gave him grace in the form of a mark protecting his physical life. We see in this passage the cost of sin is very clear. It's a dire warning for all of us that we must deal with unbelief at its root, even if it's a small beginning in our hearts. But we see the, the grace of God here in its clarity. And so may we seek the Holy Spirit's help to deliver us from this root of unbelief. 
May we heed the warning of sin's danger and may we find rest in Christ. Cain's story ends with sin in spite of grace. But it's given to us so that when we sin, we may find grace through Christ and a return to fellowship with God. May we hear what the Spirit says to the church.